Okay, let's get started. All right. Um, we're going to learn about some nuns today. Nuns and ex-nuns. Um, hey. All right, now, what we started last week, uh, or finished last week, was we finished with uh, Argula von Grimbach, and really kind of going over her uh, theology of baptism. I was here, it's not hers, it's the biblical notion of baptism, and how that has really uh, reoriented her life to, on one level, to kind of raise it up, but under that same kind of premise, uh, in today's, the, the role of baptism and this notion of calling, how uh, that has kind of radically changed uh, stations in life or callings in life, specifically related to the nuns. So the nuns, it's not really going to be about nuns per se, but we're going to use that as a tool to kind of talk on a wider scope of how God works in the world through people, through callings. All right, so these two women, Catherine Rehm, Ursula uh, of Munsterberg. I, the, the pens weren't working, so... Anyways, these are early, early uh, Reformation times, 1520s, that's early. And uh, next week's will be actually on the very end of the Reformation, so it'll be later. But anyways, the reason why I, I bring this up is because... Um, yeah, they're, they're, both, they're from two convents. Now, the thing is uh, important for us who might know a little bit about Lutheran history is that when lands were taken over by Lutheran princes or, or lands accepted um, Lutheranism, we have this image that they closed all these convents. Well, back in those days, there is a distinction. Some were convents and some were called canonist houses, and they were both run by abbess. But they're very different. The Canis House accepted the Aachen Rule of 1816, not that you need to know what that means, but these, this, this, uh, the, well, first of all, convents is, I think everybody just thinks all nuns are, are from uh, convents, and that's not necessarily true. They use this, these words very kind of loosely. So convents take a vow of three vows, poverty, chastity, and obedience. Poverty, they give up all their material goods to the convent. They, chastity, uh, so they don't get married. And then also obedience to the abbess. Um, the Candace houses, though, were um, women could go into these houses and they could still own property. They could have their own room, own quarters. And they could leave, they could leave anytime they wanted. So again, 816, 700 years before the Reformation. And why would people join these two? Well, uh, mainly because these are places generally, especially the Candace houses, were generally places of high nobility. Um, people who, who had daughters, who, and they were places of education and uh, authority. Surely. I always thought the, the Congress houses were, were like that, the uh, roles of a deaconess. Very similar. And this is really to the point of the convent. Because I really want us to like, make sure that we get this understanding. Because if we apply our, our today's understanding of what nuns are to the Reformation, we'll have it all wrong. Because in convents in the Reformation, they were cloistered. Never went out. So hopefully that rings a bell for you in the second reading. Canison houses, yes, they could go out. So, right. Um, not always, though. So each of these were kind of run differently. And this is part of the struggle with people who were in these. Because you might have some canonist houses that were very strict, even though they didn't take the vows of the three vows. The one who was in charge ran it with a tight ship, and then you had some convents who were very lax on their vows. And that's part, of, that's part of the struggle of these people who now, um, who, who are sent to these places, oftentimes underage, and 
it's kind of a mess, you know, they're really strict, some are not. Why are they strict and what's their authority? So, anyways, th that's important as we kind of talk about what, what we are going to talk about today. The, um, the other thing, too, well, so anyways, okay, let's, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here. But um, the reason why also, too, that I wanted to have you guys read this is because these four readings that we read are essentially the only ones in English. However, there is lots and lots of letters written from former nuns or nuns who wanted to stay. So the, um, obviously the most famous nun that left the convent, Catherine von Bora, Martin Luther's wife. But in that same time in Nuremberg, there's a very famous nun who was actually very defiant towards Lutheranism in Nuremberg, Nuremberg being one of those cities that accepted Lutheran Reformation. And her name was Caritas uh, 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 Brickheimer. Prickheimer. Prickenheimer. Prickenheimer. Um, and, and so she tells a lot of stories about how, like, parents would come and try to just forcefully remove the daughters from the convent, and they would keep kicking and screaming and say, no, no, we want to stay in. Uh, there's actually some great stories of where the uh, Lutheran pastor would come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with the nuns, and they would um, all turn their backs to them because they weren't going to be forced to change. So uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Now, the thing is, though, you don't get, you get hardly this in the monasteries. <laughs> I think it's very funny. So uh, when Lutheran lands, when the lands are accepted and the princes would come in and kind of confiscate monastery property, there's very few pushback from the, from the monks, which I find interesting. But the nuns. Yeah, in fact, they would, um, they would all start saying their prayers when the preacher was preaching sometimes. I mean, it got really defiant. It's pretty funny. So I, I just say that, as again, as a, as a, the, when we think of convents and nuns, these are very like, authoritative women, very powerful women. In fact, um, if you go back a few hundred years from the Reformation, you could argue that the most powerful people in Europe at this time were actually nuns, weren't, weren't the pope or the pastors. So this is very interesting for us as we think about the role of nuns in society at this time. And the other thing, too, about this is that uh, there was a lot of nuns, but 20% were either in a Canisys house or a convent. That's, you know, that's, that's a big portion of society, right? Uh, yeah, Krista. Krista, it's a time... The, the women, what should they do? Right. Well, so that is, that is part of the reasons why, um, it, yeah, a reason against reform, right? So they had, they had two choices, get married or probably go in the convent. Um, if you were poor and went to the convent, that usually meant you, like, you took out the bedpans. You know, you, I mean, so the convents were as much stratified as regular society was. But, yeah, part of the reasons why against the reform was, well, if we don't have the convents, what, where is my, what's my daughter going to do? So you had a, a very strong tradition. And, and let's be honest, some people didn't want to change because they felt like they were following God just as faithfully in the convent as if, if, if they kept the convent open or if they closed it. And you get a little bit of that from Catherine Rehm. Now, there's a lot of social, political costs going on. Like I said, these, nobility fam these noble families sent their daughters into the convents, and um, certain families would want to go into certain convents, and of course they had to pay to go into the convent. We'll come back to... But not as much as the dowries. On average, you pay into the, to the convent, it's always less than the dowries. So there is actually uh, several examples around Nuremberg, actually, where you have Lutheran families who do not want to close the convent because what are they going to do with their daughters now? They can't afford the dowries. Or, and then you actually, and, and these, these letters are from the nobility. What, are my daughters going to go marry a cobbler? It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty bad. It's, it's pretty sad. 
So we have to kind of work through all that nonsense to kind of get to the kernel of what's actually happening. But so the thing is, though, some convents actually accepted the Reformation. Quindlinburg is, a, is, a, is kind of a more real well-known at this time. The next week's reading is from Quindlinburg, but about 100 years after this. Her name's also Anna, so not to be confused. This is Anna von Stolberg. She ran Canis houses. She ran monasteries. She, ran, she was uh, in charge of lots of land. And so um, her acceptance of the Reformation is really unique and very interesting to contemplate. But of course, most of her writings are not in English. So if you have any young daughters or boys who would like to learn German, I have a bunch of work for them. In fact, uh, next week's reading, Anna Sophia von Quindlinburg. This, this, is a, from the write, this is from one of her writings. The true soul friend Jesus with emblems of, to contemplate. Uh, I actually had the vicar help me find, because most of the stuff is public domain now. And Germany is doing a lot of really great stuff, digitizing their old libraries. You can get this book. It's 467 or 97 pages. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. So, like I said, though, um, so I just put I put a couple examples of the pages next week's reading to take a look at it. He, uh, it's not easy. It's hard to keep. It's hard to even figure out what the letters are. Well, for me, anyways. Yeah. Okay, anyways, so this is, this is kind of a fun thing that you're doing. Very unique. Yeah, Krista. And that was the reason that uh, Luther um, translated the Bible in, in, a, in a German, what, what everybody can read. Yeah, right. Yeah, and this, I mean, so, anyways, it's a lot of great fun, a lot of great, interesting things. I think this should set up most of what we need to set up. Um... Okay, let's just dive into Catherine Rehm. Catherine Rehm, like I said, convent in Augsburg. It's, um, did you figure out it's, it's not just, she's not writing just for her. You know who she's writing for too? I, I can't remember if I... So she's writing to her brother. And she's writing not only just for her, um, but also for his, writing to her brother and his daughter. So writing to her brother and for herself and for his daughter. So this is a dad who wants his sister and his daughter out of the convent. All right. So why did she, why did she not want to leave? And what was her argument for staying? Just kind of should be a common occurrence from last week. Well, first of all, she says on page 29, uh, in the kind of the middle. So you should not think that we are so foolish that we place our hope in the convent and in our own works. Rather, we place our hope in God. He is the true Lord and rewarder of all things. Him do we serve more willingly in the convent than in the world, with the grace and help of God. Okay, that sounds very nice. She wants to stay in the convent because she's going to serve God more faithfully there. Could be true. Um, I couldn't understand uh, if there's something missing what her brother um, complained. You know, and... Uh, she, she asked, or, or she was writing a little bit harshly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So he responds, yeah, so I, I included the letter back to, to her, right, from him. Yeah. So the basic, the basic uh, story is he writes to her saying um, monastic vows are not according to the scripture. And that uh, you're following human traditions, but calling it God's will. And that puts your soul in jeopardy. 
Now, of course, she responds and says, I'm not putting my faith in the convent. I'm putting my faith in, in Christ, and I serve Christ faithfully in the convent. Well, okay, that's the brother's fundamental point, is that you actually are not doing anything in the convent. And he's actually basing this on this idea of vocation that we get. But, so again, she is not like, so she's self-confessing that I'm not actually trusting human traditions, I'm trusting God. So we have to understand that this is somewhat of an interesting situation, right? Because he feels like, oh, if I just give her the right knowledge, she's going to get it. Well, there's some underlying presumptions that are not connecting. All right. Um, now, the other thing, too, though, is, is that will she listen to anything he has to say? Absolutely not. In fact, he's, like Krista says, yeah, she's pretty harsh on the guy. Ufta. You show up, we're not opening the door, which is actually happens many times. The comments will just lock the doors, and then the local police will have to come and break it down. Because uh, pa- parents do come for their daughters because they feel like they've been hoodwinked. I think she's calling him a hypocrite. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. That's the reference to the Gospel of Luke with the plank, you know, the splinter and our eyes and the plank in your eyeball. Yeah. What's, what's her fundamental beef about the hypocrisy, though? What did he do that she didn't think he was going to do? What's that? She says, I know you certainly can do this and not eat meat on Friday and Saturday. These are not the teachings of Jesus Christ. You'll pour the sugar out of your eye while you right. the log in yours. Yeah, so... <laughs> So she basically says to him, hey, you do these human things too. None of us think this is going to save you. So she's pretty smart, I think. I think it's pretty clever. But the thing that really rubs her the wrong way is that he publishes her letter without her knowledge. Yeah. Kathy? Well, it doesn't help that she said, she maintains he said in the previous letter, uh, you have said that your daughter and I are to you more as if we were in a brothel. Right. Convent. Yeah. Real nice words, right? Like yeah. some bad. Yeah. Again, um, it's amazing. I, I, I just, I think it's so, I think it's so funny to read these things. Again, last week with that, that poem from uh, what's his name, Johannes Landshut. The, <laughs> the uh, patience and endurance that women have to exercise in this time. I think it's great. Holy smokes. Uh, it shows a, shows a sign of strength and um, level-headedness and, you know, smartness. Now, again, we, we don't actually have the letter like Krista says, so we don't know exactly what he says. But in his response to her, he, it's almost like, hey, man, why are, you beating up, why are you beating up on me? Okay? In fact, he, he, he starts with um, God's word, that God's word is always sure, and I, I, I'm not here to kind of lead simple-minded people astray. I'm just here to speak God's word. The, um, uh, if you turn to page 33, got to keep using the English pages. Um, he acknowledges, so it's kind of uh, two-thirds of the way up. He says, you write that your hope stands alone in God. I am glad to hear that. And I ask God that he increase such hope in you. You see where that is? However, that you say you want to serve God willingly in the convent makes me fear that things will not go as smoothly with you as you say. For I have given you enough reports from Isaiah 29 and Matthew 15 that God does not want to be honored with human teachings and laws. So what is he referring to? He could be referring to a lot of different things, and this is the unfortunate thing. But one is just the most, probably the most fundamental is the monastic vows, the vows themselves. So um, his fundamental belief is not so much the vows themselves. I mean, we all make vows. It's just that to what authority that the vow carries. Is it uh, carries the authority of God's word? Or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, 
then that must radically change how we see the vows. It's real simple. I mean, that's, that's, all, that's all he's trying to say. Okay. Now, the next thing on the bottom is where he gets into how much good is done in the convent for the rest of the world. That's his basic question. Um, and we, we get kind of an answer from that, but it's really the second letter where we get that question answered from the nuns who left from uh, Ursula of Munsterberg. So we're going we're gonna to look at that later. Um, is there any other? I mean, we're, I don't want to spend too much time on this letter. I want to kind of go to the next one. Anything else from this letter that you guys want to mention, especially in his response? All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Um, I read that in, in chapel. I'm going to read it again. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 7. Uh, you could also use uh, Romans chapter 12, kind of 1 through 8. But Ephesians chapter 4, now, it's referenced in the letter from uh, the brother here. Um, what page is that on? Page 35. Yeah, with Psalm 4, Ephesians 4. Now, he, he quotes a different part of Ephesians 4. But it is, Ephesians chapter 4 is really kind of related to our life together. So Ephesians chapter 4, therefore, this is Paul talking, obviously. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's a calling. Who does the calling? God. Okay. And of course he calls people. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with another, one another in love. Okay, so the calling is defined in terms of love. Exercising love in this calling. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But God's grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this calling, which is kind of defined by love, has God behind it. He's the one who's over all, through all, and in all. So God is active in this calling through the Spirit, which, of course, is given in faith and baptism, word and sacraments. And that calling, though, is a kind of a... So everyone has a calling, general calling, everyone's got a calling, but then there's a specific calling within that, which is verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this is really dealing with the doctrine of vocation, and this is something very new in Lutheranism at this time in the 1500s, because vocation in the 1500s was very specific. It was only related to religious calls. So the only person who had a vocation at this time was priests, nuns, bishops, um, you know, the pope, you know. So, but if you were, you know, if you were a milkmaid, you didn't have a calling. Which is very, very difficult then for, then how would you see who's doing the Lord's work or active in life? Only those who are in the, the convents or in the church. Luther can't find this in the Bible. He's like, this is not in the Bible. So, but the, the word vocation actually comes from the word calling, like vocal. So Luther then says, your vocation is not of what you're going to do for God, but he flips it around and says, what is God doing through you? Okay? So it's about what God does through you. This is the basic premise what God does through you. So there is no question if you're a milkmaid or a nun that God is working through you because you have the spirit, and that spirit is a working spirit. Just like when Argula von Grimbach said, I was given the Holy Spirit in baptism. It's a confessing spirit, so I must confess. The spirit that's given to you in holy baptism is a, is a working spirit, so it does something. 
now? Does God need you to do something for him? No, that's Martin Luther's whole point, right? God does the verbs. So who is the emphasis then in your vocation? It's no longer directed towards God, but directed towards your neighbor. Okay, this is very different than the monastic vows. So, given this understanding of vocation, and the primary emphasis is God using you, by virtue of your holy, of holy baptism, to love the world. Okay. So now Luther has kind of, they're called estates, kind of realms in our life. Each one has. So you have, um, well, this bracket, this, this doesn't include in this bracket, but you have like the church. Obviously, if you're not a Christian, you should be. So, you know, if you talk to anybody who asks about callings in life and you say, well, we all have callings, four callings, church, then the household, this would be your family, then like the state, and then um, this one is just your neighbor, and I'll explain what that mean, these mean. So the church is, you know, you, you basically have your, and so Luther, like we talked about before, you have your laity and your uh, pastors. Remember, these are both, they're not one above the other. In fact, I should write them next to each other because they're collateral, collateral. So used to lists here. That makes the church, and they all have their individual callings according to the one spirit. Givers, receivers, okay. This is fundamentally different than what the nuns are talking about. Because if you wrote it, (laughs) it's kind of subconsciously, right? You would have the pastors above and the lady underneath. But now it's, they're they're next to each other. Because they both stand before God together. Okay, great. So we all have our place in the church. Next, your household. I mean, you got parents, children, siblings, you know, and then just kind of the wider family. Everyone has these parts. So we're all, we all have our callings in the church. We have our, all, all of our callings in the household. And then in the state, you know, you have your citizens. This is the word citizen. But of course, you know, you pay your taxes. You, uh, you might serve in the military. Um, there's all different ways of being good you know, citizens that relate to each other. Yeah, we vote. I mean, of course, you didn't vote back in those days because there was no voting. But... Um, this is important for us to consider, though, because then, again, well, we haven't got to yet. Okay, so then finally, neighbor, and this is like, you know, I'm a student. This defines, you know, when you're in the grocery store, and um, or when, maybe when I'm in the grocery store, and, uh, you know, there's, you know, someone's having a tough time, uh, you know, pushing the cart or getting things. You know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I see a person struggling. What is my job? What do I do in that circumstance? Okay? This has happened to me when I was trying to get some food for um, two weeks ago. For confirmation, I was buying some Eggos, some syrup, and orange juice, and sausage. And I had to get some plates. And there's a woman who, they had some sale on... I don't know. She's trying to. Top shelf. Yeah, top shelf, and she's trying. <laughs> she's got a. Um, she's got. I don't know what she was using. She was. It wasn't a cane though. It, was, it looked. It was some kind of stick. I don't think it was a cane. But anyways, yeah, she's just she's trying to like edge it forward so she can fall and grab it. And I'm like, hey, how about if I get that for you? Okay, no problem. You know, it's just it's just those things in life. I mean, it doesn't really fit into any of these necessarily, I guess, but. So you have your kind of just your normal calling as a neighbor. All those are defined by love. 
So God is using each of these stations then to love one another because God is active. Okay, so there's always a giver and receiver going on in this. I'm trying to keep it simple. So given that then, Ursula of Mustenberg, Munsterberg, says, what I'm doing right here doesn't fit in into any of those. Yeah, I'm in the church, but I can't figure out who in the world I'm loving. I don't know what good I'm doing in the world. Now, again, you could always argue, and, and people did. Well, I'm loving the world by what am I doing? Praying. Okay, great. That's great. But, given the basic premise that now there's no longer a hierarchy of vocations, but all vocations are the place where God is active in you to love the world, now you have to say, okay, can I be better used in a godly way outside the convent? And there was lots of nuns who said, I want to be out in the world. I don't want to be cloistered. And, and then some nuns who said, no, I want to stay here and say, say prayers for the world. Okay, they're all great. Those are both great. But one is not above the other. And so one cannot bind a conscience and say, this is the only way you should live. Donna. Um, did, all the, did the nuns um, always have to uh, make a vow? Yeah, nuns in convents had to make these three vows. In fact, Ursula... No. The, so the, can, the canon houses weren't convents in the technical sense, but they were uh, intentional communities that they lived. So they did make some vows, but not, not like the vow of poverty. Okay? They made a vow of chastity, but they could leave that vow and get married. I think we kind of all fall into the trap that if we do certain things, and he says, achieve God's grace through one's own works. Right. And that's easy to do. And if you have somebody that can tell you just what to do, and you'll be you know, on the right track. That's right. Why not? Exactly. So Ursula, though, she gives several reasons. I think six reasons for leaving the convent. First one, on page 43. It's, it's real basic. <laughs> so this would be, uh, I am going to say, I don't know if you see those paragraphs, they're kind of numbered. This would be paragraph 3 on page 43, bottom, bottom of that paragraph. In these verses, it is clearly announced that all our holiness in life stands nakedly in Christ, who will be accepted on faith as in John 14.6. Page 43. So basically the first reason she's leaving is because I've been saved by grace through faith. Now, what's interesting is how she words it. Why does that sound a little odd? Do you, do you, just, do you talk about being naked? No. Why would she use that word? That's right. Good job, Julie. She, I don't know if you guys noticed, but she uses the vows and the religious language that she entered into the convent and uses it against it. So if you go to, um, well, the next page, page 45, paragraph 15. So she makes a vow. Now, this is, um, you might... Um, What's the Catherine Hepburn movie? Oh, I forgot to look that up. The nun story, right? She, oh, yeah, what did I say? Catherine, okay. I, actually, I, it's, it's kind of a pretty movie. You know, I mean, insofar as uh, the shots. But what is she dressed up in? Well, no, in her ceremony to become. Yeah, a bride dress, right? Okay. But from where is he in that picture? I'm sure there's other movies and famous. Because The Sound of Music, she never gets into the bridal dress, right, Maria? 
Whoa. She was yeah, but when she gets married, but she, before the nun, she she wasn't even like she was just kind of in her practicing nun. I forgot what it's called. Novice. Thank you. Okay. I mean, those are really the only two like famous <laughs> nuns that I think about. I mean, in in terms of popular culture. Okay. But uh, yeah, Audrey Hepburn is in this bridal image, and that's very common today. So I mean, they still. So, uh, 15, she uses that language. But how should we not, by these actions, taking vows in the convent, have shamed the spirit of grace through which alone the forgiveness of sins occurs? As, oh, uh, page 45, paragraph 15. Down at the bottom there. Um, but... How should we not by these actions, taking vows in the convent, have shamed the spirit of grace through which alone the forgiveness of sins occurs, as Christ says? John 20, 22, and 23, that's the... And this above all, because we are bound to Christ in baptism with indissoluble bonds of matrimony, spousehood through faith, as in Hosea 2, 20. I've entrusted you to me through faith. So, she... I, mean, I think that's so clever. She says, you know, I know we, we, we pretend we're married as nuns, but actually I was married in holy baptism. Well, again, there's limits to the analogy. It's very important because Jesus is actually not light. I don't know if you guys knew that. He's a person. Okay, so there's always limits to the analogy. This is Smarty Pants over there. <laughs> Okay, the, uh, no, but the whole point, though, is she uses it against it, right? She says, oh, I'm, I'm going to betroth to Jesus. Well, actually, I already am because Christ has joined himself to me in the nuptial bath of holy baptism. And she uses uh, Hosea 2.20, which we all know the story of Hosea, and that's an image of God and us. But she grind, grounds it in baptism, just like Argyle von Grimbach. It's very smart. It's so good. Yeah, Holly. Um, the uh, nuptial or ceremony. Mm-hmm. Did that make you holy? I mean, is that part of the... It, yeah, during the medieval times. Now, if you were to ask nuns today, I mean medieval, Reformation times, um, they would not say that. They wouldn't say, oh, this doesn't make me any more holier than the average Christian. I mean, this is one of the effects of the Reformation. It actually has affected. Don't let them know it, and they will never, uh, they will never acknowledge it. But, uh, yes, there's actually been some good things done in the Roman Catholic Church because of the Reformation. Yeah. Krista. I just only want to say there was a reason that the cloisters and emptied because um, Luther said, you are not holier than we are. Yeah, that's right. Now, she, uh, she acknowledges this, right? Oh, cloister nuns are not any holier than others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris was just saying Luther, you know, kind of writes this up to. Uh, well, and he would know that from a personal experience. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Now, again, what a lot is said is here is obviously can be applied to the monasteries, but we're gonna just. All right. Um, okay. So then, if you go to the bottom of page forty-seven. So she first talks about taking off the habit. She then brings in the nuptial ceremony, the, the bridal ceremony. And then on bottom of 47, she brings up three vows. So clever. And I'm, I'm impressed with this lady. She says, I already made three vows. So here, bottom of that. Well, I'm just going to read. I'm going to start at the beginning of the paragraph 17. Who can deny here that it's not of our own making when we worship the works of our hands and extend divine honor to them, and when we entrust our salvation to them, though this honor belongs only to God, as, as was mentioned above? Okay, so she's like, you, you can't really deny that. That's, that's, that's what we think of these things. They're human works, but we consider them to be from God. So it's a critique. And then she says, we have done this further with our three vows. I didn't write them down. Poverty, chastity, obedience, to which we would have unchangeably held to the damage of our souls. In this case, the law of God must not apply, but yield to faith and love as 
in the Bible verses. Are they, three clerical vows, not opposed to the baptismal vows, which we vowed again here to have no other gods, renounce the devil, and to bind ourselves to the kingdom of God, to be governed by him alone in the word. She's like, I got three greater vows that I made in holy baptism. But they're all related to, like, have no other gods is poverty. Yeah, so she, she grinds, so, so this is the thing, is that she... she Parallel. Yeah, but she says, but, but better. Because it's grounded in actual, the Bible. Now, she doesn't quote the scripture, but of course that's the underlying assumption there. So, um, I just, I'm so, I'm so impressed by that. So, so the rest of page 49 then, she kind of goes through the, the vows there of poverty, chastity. And then um, on, on top of page 51 is the obedience, the public confession. So she, uh, so what happens is, this might, I don't know if you guys were kind of confused by that on 29. Paragraph 29, page 51. All right, so let me just, I'll. It's the second full sentence. So we are also informed by the esteemed word of God that faith in the heart is not enough for salvation, but there must also be a public confession for the denial of self. For Christ also said, Matthew 10, just like our Galavon Grimbach. So she's basically making this confession of obedience to to God. All right. All right, I th- well, it, it, okay, so if you flip the page over to page 53, this is where now we get into love and, and kind of more specific about vocation. So the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and then, yeah, I, I, well, the seventh could be included that, but I, I was really only thinking of the uh, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth is now we're getting to this, connect, this connection of like, oh, wait, we could be loving and doing really great stuff if we were not compelled to stay in the convent, but could go out into the world and do well or do good. Um, I mean, there's more specific ones. So like in the fifth, I don't know if you guys, the fifth reason is really, woof. It's too bad. Where they basically acknowledge, you know, we are filled with envy and hate and we shouldn't go to the Lord's Supper, but they're making us go. Oh, that's, um. They only went to communion on the Lord's Supper 24 times in a year. Yeah, well, that, and that's because uh, the priest had to be there. So he was not there every... I was going to say, that's not even once a week. Yeah. Yep. Uh, now, again, I don't know too much about their kind of circumstances in Must or uh, in um, Freiburg. So, but like, if, for instance, in Nuremberg, I mentioned that uh, crazy—I shouldn't say that—very defiant lady, to the point of, like, hey, take it easy. So in the clo- there's a certain cloister. I mean, there's so many funny stories about that. Little tangent here. Sorry. Um, there's there's so some of these cloisters were so cloistered, where the the pastor would come and celebrate the Lord's Supper behind a veil. And um, they, he could see them through this little slot. And it's, it sounds weird, but I mean, just okay. Just just bear with me. So you could see through the slot. So like, you know, in movies where like people are trying to trick to see whether someone's in bed or not, you know, they put pillows in the bed and put the, the sheets over it. They did the same thing with themselves, like in the pews. They just have like these like mannequins, I guess. So the priest thinks he's celebrating the Lord's Supper and the nuns are not even inside the church. It's hilarious. Okay. 
Anyways, so you, um, so, but in that circumstance, though, Carol, in that specific circumstance, there's pre there was priests there regularly, so they probably received it more than 24 times, and that in Nuremberg. So I think it's just dependent on the availability of the priest. Okay. What were we talking about again? Oh, yeah, so now, okay, so then you go to uh, page 57, and... This is kind of the crowning, crowning section. A paragraph 55. The seventh reason that stirred us to abandon convent life is this. Everywhere in sacred scripture, it is written that our life should be directed toward reaching out our hands to one another and serving them. So now they, they've coalesced everything they've said into this one moment. We basically are thinking about ourselves only and not about others. And life in the convent is really self-referential rather than towards others. So the, the, the doctrine of vocation in, in Lutheranism, what God does through you, they actually they had a very tough time answering that question. What does God do through you? And who's it for? The other thing, too, is that um, Martin Luther also used this term, masks of God. Your, like your vocations are masks of God. So whether you're a Christian or not, God is active in you. You don't know it or not. I mean, so faith reveals God active in the world because God sends rain on the just and unjust. And um, the baker who might be an atheist makes bread to feed, you know, people who are hungry. That's Well, that's what God wants done. God wants... People who are hungry to be fed. So if, even if you're an atheist, you're still doing God's work. So Luther uses this, this term, mask of God. And so, you, so sometimes you're not even aware of what you're doing for God. Which I think is one of those pleasant surprises in life, right? But you can also do things that God has bidden us to do and have a good conscience about them. Ursula of Munzenberg has does not have a good conscience. She's bound by this conscience and uncertainty of her life, and so she needs to be set free. And that's and then that's why she left. All right. Any um, any questions right now? Yeah, Julie. My question is what I'm going to talk about this in previous years. What then is the implication for, like, a vocation for women in terms of, like, we mentioned household. Yeah, right. I mean, where does, like, work outside the household fall into this? Does that fall into, like, the labor category? I mean, that some women who are in ministry... Yeah, right. That's great. That's a great one. So, so here's the thing, is that these, these kind of quadrants are all just as uh, important as any other one. And so what, um, the idea of loving your neighbor, this is where God's creativity is active in your life. So unfortunately, a lot of people want to like, yeah, so, so God gives you your calling and you have kind of four places in life to exercise your calling and you get to kind of explore those, those, those places. Now, you always want to think in the concrete and not in the abstract. So, like, for instance, my household calling is I'm a father, a husband. That's abstract. I'm husband of Holly, concrete. I am father of Audrey, Isaac, Penelope, and Daphne, concrete. Because then we have something to, to like, focus on and be the receiver of our Work uh, of our um, service, of God's work in our life. So, this, okay, so hang on. I'm going to come to the church one last. So, the loving your neighbor one, that is like always happening. You're like, oh man, I, I could have a good conscience about helping that lady get those plates. I did God's work that moment. Oh, praise be to God. Now, every time I go to the grocery store, I shouldn't be looking for that one lady. I mean, I shouldn't be looking for a lady to help with the paper plates, right? I mean, I just go and buy things and God will show up and it'll be amazing. It'll be great. Okay. 
Well, yeah. You know, okay. So anyway, so the whole point though is is that there's that that quadrant is probably the most kind of adventurous in our life, unknown. Whoa, what's happening? Okay, the state. Um, I am a resident of Wheaton, Illinois. I have to pay these taxes whether I like them or not because theoretically, I believe taxes help my neighbor. <laughs> I hope, I hope. That's what they're supposed to do. Okay, um, so, so you have very concrete things whether you like it or not. I mean, it's, it's kind of easy to latch on to. Even if you're a woman or a man, that's what I'm saying. Like, so you have your roles. Now in the church, and this is where we're getting to, and as we study the women of the Lutheran Reformation, is we are hopefully understanding that women's role in the church has been a lot more robust and influential than maybe we know. Because our experience actually is not the fundamental experience. And that's why I'm hope- I want to introduce these women to everybody, is that we get to see a lot of women who are very active in the church and carry authority. And that's why I mentioned her right here, Anna von Stolberg. I, I'm very serious about this. If you, have any, if you know anybody who speaks or writes German, well, first of all, I can make out the letters. That would be helpful. Because I, I can read German, okay. But I, I can't even figure out what the letters are. Okay, anyways. Um, you, you, yeah, so because you have her, and then you also have Elizabeth. We're not going to study her just because we don't have anything in English, but she was a princess of Denmark. She uses her authority as a state. She goes into the church, though. She's a layperson, but she's the most powerful person in the church. So, and again, she's not advocating. So this is the thing about, like, understanding a true strength of a woman, true calling, uh, whether you're a male or female, and understanding how they're all driven towards loving our neighbor. And again, so Elizabeth of uh, Denmark, uh, she, I, she's, again, she's got all these very interesting church orders. She helps out the, the write the church orders. Church orders are like the hymnals. She helps write the hymnals. Um, because she, that's normal. Worship life is, is pastors and lay people, but we're all focused on Christ together. And there's giving and receiving. Um, I don't have any of that in English, fortunately. But see, that's, not a, not, that's a non-German Lutheran history. So Missouri Senate, we're very German-oriented, and that, that's not, so that's why we don't know about it in the Missouri Senate. Okay, what was I getting at? Oh, okay, so anyway, so what I'm getting at is now then how can we talk about church life and women in quote-unquote ministry? Now, historically, the word ministry has been very specific. You know, nowadays we have a donut ministry, right? I mean, high school Bible study has a donut ministry. No, I'm teasing. That's what I call it. And Pastor Brusick does not like that. All right. Yeah, if you, if John, when John Kleinick comes back, Ask him about the word ministry, and you will get a earful. Because ministry, historically, has always just meant, like, word and sacrament. That's, that's the ministry. Now we just kind of use it generally, right? Like, any, any service in the church is a ministry. Okay, so anyway, so I say women in ministry with quotes, uh, mainly because we don't know what the word ministry means. <laughs> For whatever, whatever it means. But women in the church. And, and I want to get to that because we, uh, so, I mean, Pastor Ruzik and I are very, very clear on this. Like, you know, obviously Carol Heidorn was the president of the congregation. We're very adamant about having women in leadership because that's normal. That's, that's okay. That's good. Um, but that's different than like saying, you know, having women at, at work in the spiritual fatherhood of, of the pastoral ministry. And we'll talk about that later. But um, if we're Lutherans, we won't ever pit those up above one another. They're both essential to the work of the church and the, and the carrying out of the gospel. And because they're essential, and because God calls you to specific places, we can feel secure that God's active in your life. 
You know, isn't that great? I mean, I, I always feel like that's fantastic. It, you know, and I really thrived in this when my kids were like in diapers. Because I felt like when I was, you know, chain wiping up poopy diapers, I'm like, I'm doing God's work. You know, I kept saying that myself. So I never had a problem with that. So, but it's, it's true. And, that, and those are good things because then it enlivens us to be content. And so much of our life, we're like discontent. But smile, because God loves you. You're baptized. Like Argula and Ursula both argue from their holy baptism to do great things. That's the same with each one of us. We've been baptized. We're children of the Heavenly Father. So we have great things in front of us. Even if it's changing a poopy diaper. Now that, that's Luther's famous thing. The, uh, the milkmaid... Uh, what is he... I should have looked this up. I don't want to get it wrong. Anyways, the milkmaid is, has just as a holy, holy job as the Pope or whatever. All right, any, any questions or comments? Uh, so I got the other reading. That is going to be on the tail end of kind of the Reformation period. And you will see kind of an outgrowth of the in-between 100, 100 years. So Anna Sophia of Quindlinburg is a, in the heritage of Anna von Stolberg of Quindlinburg. And so that's kind of cool. Well, I think it's very cool. When was this written? The, uh, the, so that, those are from six, 1629. Hang on, hang on. Let me just look real quick. Oh, I'm sorry, 1658. And the other one is 1670. I'll, I'll give you more of a kind of a historical introduction next week about this. And then we'll also take a look at the, the, what Luther says about monastic vows and more concretely. And then um, that's February 21st. February 28th, we won't have class. So I'll be up in Wisconsin. <sighs> yeah, next class, that's next week, right? February 21st? Yeah, we have class next week. Then February 28th. No class. So, um, but I'm going to just give you one more reading of Mary, Queen of Hungary. I think Elizabeth Kruger, Kruziger, the hymn writer from that we sang in chapel. They're just all real short. They're songs and poems. So we should have a whole plethora of women's writings from the Lutheran Reformation, from a theological work to a more like practical work in terms of vocation, to the meditations, to um, uh, hymns and poetry. It's pretty much all the kinds of writing that people did back in the Reformation. You know, were, I don't know if a woman wrote an instruction manual, but she could have. I just don't know where that is. Right? Oh, and novels didn't really exist back then, so we don't have any novels. You don't have Katharina von Bora on your list. <laughs> I don't have her because you know what? You can get I mean you can go to the public library and get a book on her. I, I can guarantee you can't go to the public library and get any books on the one that's yeah. So again, I said that before, I'll say it again. Because people have asked me, Hey, I see you're teaching on Lutheran Reformation, are you talking about Catherine Van Bora? I'm like, No. Oh really? Like, yeah, because just go, go to cph.org and they're nice books. They're great books. But um, there's, she's so easy to get a hold of in terms of information. You know, the sad thing, too, about her, just a little tidbit, is, you know, there was a, there's this lot of letter writing between Luther and her, and we have no letters from her. Nobody kept her letters. Isn't that, that's terrible. Everyone, they all kept Luther's. So the only reason why we know about all the letters um, between them is because of what Luther says in his letters to Catherine von Bora. It's a bummer. So, anywho, so you don't even get the full story, even though you get a lot of information. I mean, 
we're not even close to the full story. Okay, let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.